most interesting, and she has lots and lots of information to give you. Susan Krausen is the program director or program manager for Baptist Memory Healthcare Center. With almost 10 years experience specializing in memory diseases, Susan has developed systematic approaches to recognizing and identifying losses and behaviors due to dementia. In 2011, Susan provided testimony for the National Alzheimer's Advisory Council in Washington, D.C. She has also been a guest speaker for conferences and special events for the Alzheimer's Association in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Memphis. Before coming to Baptist, she served as Director of Programs and Advocacy for the Alzheimer's Association's Mid-South Chapter. In addition to her professional experience, Susan was primary caregiver for her father, who died from Alzheimer's disease in 2010. So she has personal experience, too. So, Susan, would you like to come ahead? And we're glad to have you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here today. I'm so glad to see all of you. And thank you. So is this an auditory? It's not... Record. Okay, good. Super. Welcome to a wonderfully deep and moving topic on a gorgeous Sunday afternoon. How about that? I hope that when you leave today, you will feel at peace and inspired and hopeful. Now, between here and there, it may be pretty depressing, but that's okay. We're going to come out of it because with the amount of time that we have today, I would really like to go into a lot of detail and answer questions that you may have and share with you information that you need to have so that if you are presently or will be encountering folks with early onset disease processes, you will be better equipped. How's that sound? Sounds good? Okay, so let me get an audience profile. I met a couple of students here, so raise your hand if you are a student in Dr. Brown's class. Uh, church. Church, Dr. Church's class. A little higher. We have one, two, three, four. Okay, and you, you all in the back row, where are you all from? Okay, a little road trip for today? No, our mom, we're, we're, we're our mother. Ah, gotcha, awesome. And are, is she here in the area? Yes. And you all are here kind of visiting-ish? We're just to see, she's got some problems. Wow, yeah. and this weekend coincided with your with this, visit? This, yes, and, and, and a friend of hers let us know about this. How about that, Bioethics Committee and Comfort Coalition? Oh, what a blessing. Well, I hope that you all will be able to ask some questions and uh, really be able to uh, get some personal information for you. How about uh, those of you that are part of the Comfort Coalition and Bioethics Committee, could you stand up so everybody can see you? These are part of the core group. And I hope that you will have an opportunity to meet them 
what I noticed about these folks is they're very, very intelligent individuals. Highly intelligent. They're also very, very real people. And they come from very different backgrounds. And when you get that kind of combination of people, oftentimes the, a core group or the group really doesn't gel very well because there maybe are a lot of chiefs and fewer Indians, but we have a whole group of servant-hearted, uber-intelligent individuals that have a passion to help the community bring up topics that affect life as we age and as we die. So uh, my heart longs to be at your regular meetings, and I can't, just timing-wise, but I love your mission. And I hope that you all will become knowledgeable about their mission and participate when you can. All righty. Now then, we provided you with a refrigerator magnet pad to take notes and a pen. Uh, this has our phone number on it, how to contact the memory center, and a little uh, card, how to contact the memory center, a pen, and I want you to be able to take notes and write down when you have questions so that you can ask. As a, as, as a topic is going along, you're welcome to ask and for you to remember questions to ask towards the end. Next thing I'd like to know from all of you is, uh, let's do a continuum. Who has had a loved one who has already passed away from some type of memory disease? Raise your hand. So that's uh, about 60%, over half. How many of you presently are in the midst of the discovery or caregiving process for someone that either has been diagnosed or needs to be diagnosed with a memory disease? Raise your hand. Wow. So that's half. And so a couple of you, I recognize you, a couple of you didn't raise your hand. So for those of you that didn't raise your hands, tell us your interest in being here today. Well, my mom and my grandmother both had dementia. They didn't pass away from Alzheimer's, but I was curious to know more about it. I didn't know the signs that were happening. Mm -hmm. General information I'd like. Okay. And that were my grandmother. Okay, so you two are family. Okay. And was there one other person somewhere? Or did we cover everybody? Okay. Super. All righty. So that uh, tells me that just about everybody has had direct personal observation and or direct experience. Good. Our topic today is early onset. Early onset is the term that is used for any kind of cognitive disease process that occurs under the age of 65. How about that? Really scientific, huh? Why do you think 65 is the demarcation for age-appropriate 
or age-related dementias, and early onset. Very good. Who said that? Very good. Is retirement age? That's when you're eligible for Medicare. So, Medicare provides obviously a broader uh, portfolio of med medical services, and the disease process requires regular and ongoing and increasing medical needs that aren't always covered with private care or private pay insurance when you're under the age of 65. So that's all it is. Sometimes it is called younger onset or early onset. Those two words are used interchangeably. Nothing, like there's nothing miraculous about either of those names. We prefer to use early onset because uh, of the staging process, but either of those terms are intermixable. Tell me what dementia is. Who can define dementia? How about one of the students? Has it been in the textbooks yet? Yeah. Dementia is what you've said, is that your mental faculties are not working properly. It is a term that defines a collection of symptoms. What are some of those symptoms? There are three hallmark symptoms. Say it again. Loss of memory. Is this a... Uh, confusion. Uh, paranoia is kind of a secondary one. Okay. We'll come back to that one. So loss of memory, confusion. Think about your loved ones in the in the early stages. What uh, what were some hallmark symptoms that you knew things weren't right? That's forgetfulness, which is loss of memory. Okay, uh, confusion. Incohesiveness. Uh, we'll come back to that one. Maybe uh, inability to regulate emotions. Uh, we'll come back to that one. Okay. How about your mom? Is she disoriented in any way? Yes. Okay. That's the third one. So you can write these down if you'd like to. And uh, I always add the word significant. So significant memory loss, significant confusion, significant disorientation. Those are the hallmark symptoms of, a, of dementia, when your brain is just not working right. Who can define for me what significant memory loss is? is? It's not like a definition, but 
how do you know somebody has significant memory loss instead of just normal age-related memory problems? Right. It impacts the person's ability to function. What else? The memory part. What's distinct about the memory part of it? Because lots of things can interfere with the person's ability to function. Short-term memory. Okay. Okay. Good. That's good. Additional. Give me some more. Can't find your way around. Mm-hmm. So that has to do with memory and orientation combined. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. So it is memory that it affects and impairs our daily living. And what was the thing that you said? Uh huh. And then affects their recognition of where they are, who they are, and who you are. The difference between how you as a layperson can know the difference between normal memory problems as you get older and disease process is that the memory problems for a disease is loss. Remember, significant memory loss. I didn't say significant memory problems. It's specifically loss. So if you think about, almost all of you have had exposure to folks that have had a memory disease. They knew something, and then they don't know it. It's not forgetfulness. So how many of you have forgotten something this week? What have you forgotten? She doesn't remember. <laughs> what else? Come on, toss it out. Huh? Where is she parked? What else? Send my husband an email. I forgot to send her husband an email. What else? Homework. Forgot homework. What else? Refill prescription. Forgot to refill my prescription. Announce the weekend. How about tangible things? Keys. What else? Cell phone. Okay. Could you find them again? All right. That's forgetfulness. Distinctly different than loss. So I'd like to do a little exercise, and some of you in my uh, sessions may have experienced this before, but you get to do it again. I'd like for you to experience how you can figure out if you're if something is forgetful to you or if you really can't remember it because you said you can't remember what you didn't remember so you might be a candidate at the end. so just pick uh, your keys or your cell phone some kind of tangible object homework something that you can can visualize and uh, we're all going to stay in our seats we're just going to close our eyes I'm not going to move nobody's going to touch or do anything but So if you'll just feel safe just to close your eyes, I want you to visualize that item or object. And I'm going to use keys because there's a lot to them. So so you can go on your own journey, but I'm going to verbalize the journey of keys. So I'm looking at my keys, my key ring, you guys looking at yours, and um, there's a bunch of keys on there. Do you know what all the keys are? 
Some of you may have a key on there that you can't remember. What in the heck is it still on there for? Or it might be to your old house that you sold a while ago and it's time to take that one off. Uh, some of your keys might have color on them. Those are pretty popular these days uh, to get some with different colors to help dis differentiate the purpose. Think about your key ring. Where did you get it? Uh, did it come? For ladies, oftentimes purses will have a key ring that comes with their purse. Is that what your key ring is? Uh, guys tend to like want to slim down to put in their pocket. So what, are, what about your keys? Uh, so now you've kind of visualized that, and so you can't find them. So think about the first place you're going to look when you can't find it. So it might be in your purse, your pocket, uh, your school bag, backpack, a certain place in your car, a certain place at home, and it's not there. So think about for you where's your second place that you're going to start looking for it. And it's not there. So now you might start panicking, and we're going to stop the visualization at that point, and you can open your eyes, because I don't want you to panic. But could you visualize that journey? Could you see your special places? Could you see your keys? Okay, so you're, and you did? Sure. Oh, phew. <laughs> <laughs> So let me show you what's happening in the normal uh, cell process, and then I'll talk about how memories are made. And in the, in, in the normal cell process, you've got neurons. Neurons are something like the palm of my hand, and the neurons have little uh, neurotransmitters, little fibers that talk to each other. And um, I always like to use the one about hungry. So here we are. I'm hungry, and this little neurotransmitter says, Ooh, hey, let's go get some ice cream from Chick-fil-A. And judgment jumps in there and says, ah, 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 we are on a diet. We are not going here. Right? Okay. That's the normal process of our brain cells. As we age, here's what happens. Um, something to eat. Where are we going? It just slows down. And so sometimes as our, a, as our thinking process slows down as we age, we start wondering if we have memory problems. So we've forgotten our keys and then we can't think about where they are. It takes us forever. And I have this 90-year-old, very, very sharp patient who had some ambulation issues. She was uh, on a walker, and, and she said what I'm pretty sure you all have had happen before, heard other people. She said, I, w I, I went into the other room, and I can't remember why I went there. And I said, well, were you using your walker or not? And she said, no. And I said, well, try using your walker, because it'll take you a little extra time to get there. And by the time you get there, maybe your memory will catch up with you, and you'll remember what you went to the room for. So it's just your memory gets slower as you get older. And that's very, very normal. And that's usually why we ask you young folks to, to do things for us, to program our phones and our remote controls and stuff like that and remember what our passwords are and things like that. 
But when there's a disease process occurring, the uh, functional portions of our brain that are being affected by the disease cause the collection of cells to die. So this is very, very simplified. It's not a single neuron. There are billions of them. But here's a a collection of neurons that's the appetite neurons. So if there's no appetite, then we can't go to McDonald's or Taco Bell or get a really healthy organic salad. Can't go get the food. The food might be in the refrigerator, but we won't have the prompting to go get the food. Any of your loved ones appetite uh, became very impaired where they didn't even think to eat. Uh, Rarely, but sometimes, it's the other way. And we have a patient that chocolate and skinny cows, you know, Weight Watchers skinny cows, uh, ate a day. We're trying to figure out how to give a new behavioral pattern for her. Here you go. Come on up. Um, but her, um, her taste buds are heightened by the sweet. Her judgment cells, we already know, are significantly impaired. So she is getting to the grocery store and buying eight packs of skinny cows, which have like six or so in them, and eating them before within the week and then going back for more. So that's, that's as much, that's hardly has anything to do with appetite. It has everything to do with the fact that the judgment cells are impaired and, and that the sweet taste buds are, they're usually the last remaining cells in our mouth, the sweet parts, but, um, but that they're still intact. So as the disease process occurs, When the cells are damaged, the communication can't happen properly. We don't know why specifically the disease process occurs in any of the diseases, but there is more and more information about what is happening. And again, it isn't even conclusive, but for Alzheimer's type disease, there are plaques and tangles that are occurring that break this neurotransmitter cycle. They cause the cells to atrophy, to die, and and the tangles are interfering with the ability for the correct information to be communicated. That's that's all people know. We don't understand. There's not no conclusive information about why that's happening. There are other diseases that uh, have certain types of, I'm going to call them mutated cells, but I don't like to use that word, but they're, they're sick. They're cells that are sick that multiply in certain areas of the brain that also interfere with that, with that communication. And those of you that are students or any of you can also look on the internet to see that your brain has got component parts of it. The front part of your brain is called frontal. This is where all your language skills are, uh, where you process incoming 
information and uh, process the outgoing response to it just in terms of the uh, logistical part of it. Behind that is the temporal portion. Someone in here mentioned about emotions. The emotions, that section monitors uh, what, what, how we translate what comes in and what goes out. So when that portion is damaged, then inappropriate information can go out or in. And how many of you had loved ones that would blurt out uh, inappropriate words, um, do inappropriate actions? Um, you know, it may even be just like picking their boogers, you know, in public. I mean, it's not that terrible. It's not against the law, but it's socially inappropriate. And they don't think anything about it. Uh, that's an indication that those cells are being damaged. Uh, the hippocampus is somewhere back in here. That is where our short-term memories are stored. And memories are laid down by a series of information coming in. So there has to be the ability to receive the information. And sometimes there's impairment with the reception which can cause a person to be confused, not have a memory, and be disoriented, but in fact, there's no disease process going on. Sometimes there is some t something going on, and oftentimes it can be hearing loss, severe hearing loss. So we have patients who now we ask, do, do they wear glasses and do they wear hearing aids? Have them on when they come, because if a person is deaf and they can't take the words in, then they can't res respond. And we have a patient that, through our testing, we figured out they could not hear anything we said. And believe it or not, the wife said, well, you know, he had something happen to him back 40 years ago, and we just never thought anything about it. And now, but they're bringing them because he can't, he's, he's impaired in his daily living. Well, he was smart as a whip. And, and we just felt really sorry. It's like, how did you guys not connect that? But anyway, that is an element. If you cannot receive the information, then you cannot create a memory. Once the information is received, it has to be laid down. Just like a, you know, laid down on a on a on a tape recorder or, or a, a, a recording device or on a DVD or on the cloud, it has to be able to be laid down. That process is fairly complicated, and I can't even I don't even know exactly what it is. I don't know how to explain it, but it has to be able to be recorded. Now, some folks that their information is recorded is like a a bouncing machine. And that's ADHD. Like the information comes in and it's just boing, 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 boing. But it's in there. It just doesn't know how to sit down or find the little place for it to settle down. But it's got recorded. So once the information is recorded, then the information has to be able to be retrieved. So before it can come out, it has to be found the, the correct information isolated and identified and then pulled out 
That is also very complicated because you've got the judgment component in there. Of, you know, do I say that, you know, you only have one earring in today, or, you know, you're, I don't like your glasses, or, you know, like, what do you, you know, it's like you've got your filters that it goes through before you put your words out. So all of that is, it's a simplified way of saying anything can happen in that journey, but with that journey, when the disease process is occurring, we can, we can tell based on a person's response where the impairment is. Is the impairment with the reception? Is it with the filter? Is it with laying down? Is it with the filters? Or is it retrieving? So let's use an example of word retrieval. Any of your loved ones have a problem finding, word finding, finding the right word when they were trying to explain something? Like, can you give me an example? Yes, my mother could not recall my uh, my new married name. Okay. How about objects? Anybody? So uh, we have folks name common objects. And uh, let's just say it's a paper clip or stapler or something like that. Uh, the person that has difficulty finding the word will oftentimes describe the purpose. So they'll say, well, that's a device to uh, put pa- pieces of paper together. Well, yeah, it is but they can't tell you what, it, what the name of it is. Does any of that ring a bell? Like they describe they, a lengthy, potentially lengthy description of how things work, but never the name of it. That, can, if you're not keen on what to look for, that will throw you, you, you'll, you can miss the fact that, they, that they've lost word recognition. Because they're having a conversation, you're talking about something, and they're giving you all the information, and it's so interesting how fabulous their vocabulary is. They're just not having any memory problems at all, but in fact, they're not telling you, they cannot give you a direct answer. Well, for my dad, he was very intelligent, and he was trying to describe the lawnmower, and he never used the word lawnmower. This is like, I was like really drilling him down one day. I'm going, I'm going to get this word out of you because I think you're spoofing me. Because he called it a device that was, um, he had some very elaborate, um, multi-syllable words he was using to describe the object that cuts the grass. It's just a lawnmower. You know, it's not that big a deal. But, it, but we were sitting there realizing he's supposed to be losing his words, but he's giving us all this terrific vocabulary. What's going on here? And so it wasn't until we just kept on asking, what is the name of this object, that we realized it was the word-finding problem. And we, we had just totally missed it. And, uh, and, and some folks are able to use that as a coping mechanism in the, in the earlier stages because they're aware that they can't find it, but they're still a 
bright mind enough to kind of renegotiate the words. So word finding is frequently lost early, and that's loss. It's not forgetting. She didn't forget, potentially, that you got married. She lost. And she may have even lost that whole event because it was recent. So short-term memory loss is the first and most significant memory loss when it is associated with the disease of Alzheimer's. So you may not be aware there are other diseases that occur early. And before we're done, I'm going to tie all this to early onset dementias. But there are certain diseases that early on, it does not affect memory. It affects behavior. It adds behaviors that are psychotic, like visual hallucinations <coughs> during the daytime, that the person uh, is very aware of, is able to communicate in words what it is, but doesn't have any fear, and, and that goes away and they're, they were fine before and they're fine after. But that's pretty weird, right? That is the early hallmark sign for Lewy body dementia. And we have one of the board members has a family member with advanced Lewy body dementia. Those are the first sim- symptoms and their memory is fully intact for a very long time. It's not until the end of the disease process that their memory declines. So here we are thinking, you know, as a culture, we're so smart that short-term memory impairment is a disease of dementia, but we miss the folks that have even a greater need because it's not the memory component happens later. Lewy body is a cell that multiplies and somewhere back in here. It's in the same area that Parkinson's develops, but instead of it being the motor component, it is something that has to do with the behavior component. And that's all I know. So it would be Lewy body, it would be a dementia of Lewy body, or Lewy bodies with Parkinson's. Something like that. Now, uh, so we're talking about how memories are laid down. So the information comes in, it gets laid down, it gets, uh, but it, it has to be re- retrieved and then it's spoken. When it gets retrieved, the person may be very clear about what it is and not able to say the words at all. And those persons could be suffering from a disease process that's affecting the front part of their brain, the fronto portion of the brain. It's where our language center is. So their intelligence is there, their memory capacity is there, 
but their, their retrieval is there, but their language expression is impaired. Frontotemporal dementia. The words flow and they don't make sense. Did anybody notice that, that words would come out and they didn't make any sense towards the end of an Alzheimer's patient's lifespan? Did anybody experience that? So what's interesting is sometimes the beginning symptoms of one disease is the end of another and vice versa. It's very common towards the later stages of Alzheimer's type disease that, that the language expression component becomes impaired where they don't make any sense at all. Alrighty, so we're talking about memories, how they're laid down, how it affects some of the diseases, and so I'm gonna, I'd like to start talking about early, but I wanted to ask, does anybody have any questions or can you, um, can you apply any of the things that we've talked about to the person that you know? that is occurring in the frontotemporal portion. The temporal is where our emotions and our impulses are occurring that are not able to filter and provide good judgment. And there's no, uh, I haven't, I'm not aware of why the link is to the activity of shopping because it's very complicated. It's multi-step. You have to remove yourself from your present environment and get into the environment to do the shopping. You have to know how to get the item and then get it purchased. You have to get it to your cart. It's very, very multi-step. 
which a person with Alzheimer's type disease loses their multitasking, their multi-step as the disease progresses, can get into a grocery store, not know how to get the items that they need, much less get to the cash register and then find the car, which is such a curious comparison to the person that has a dementia disease that compulsive shopping is a significant component of. And so here's family because the person is draining their own uh, cost of living expenses and their cost of care expenses. So it is one of the behavioral diseases. Can I ask how old your mom is? It's normally folks that are under age 65, early onset, that, that seem to be the predominant age group for frontotemporal dementia. Don't know why. I mean, I don't know why. Somebody might know why, but I don't know why. But it makes it really compounded because they're young enough to know better. And they normally, if they have kids or family, there are, there's usually enough family structure still alive and in their life to question their behavior. Because the temporal section is damaged, the same uh, ferocious need to compulsively shop is the same wall that keeps them from being able to be reasoned with. So we will, uh, thank you for sharing that, and, and add some more um, on the other side. We're going to talk about what in the heck do we do with all this. But let's keep discovering what's happening in, in, in the disease process and in the younger, younger side, under the age of 65. So certain of the dementia diseases are particularly, younger folks are particularly prone to frontotemporal dementia and Lewy body dementia. Those are the behavioral dementias. So let's talk specifically about, some more about frontotemporal, and, and this is the part that just gets like, frontotemporal and Lewy bodies are just, there's nothing positive or good about it, um, ever. So let's get real depressed, and then we're going to work, work, work through it. Uh, so let's talk about frontotemporal. Uh, it normally exhibits itself with a big word, disinhibition. No 
filter. Behavior that this person is not characteristically done in the past or becomes very, very exaggerated their behavior, it is usually very socially inappropriate. It is the type of behavior that is embarrassing to be around and unmanageable basically from the beginning and becomes increasingly more unmanageable and ultimately permanently unmanageable. Frontotemporal has four different components, uh, types, four different types of frontotemporal dementia. The first is the behavioral variant. They call FTD, frontotemporal dementia, BV, behavioral variant. In the olden days, those folks would have been like, and just say a normal citizen. And then they're the guys, the people, and it, it usually happens to men, but, but we've seen several women. But it, the person then becomes a recluse out somewhere and does weird things like strip off all their clothes and run down Main Street, yelling obscenities. And there's no history of men, mental illness in the family. The person was, a, was normal and then kind of disappeared out of the sphere and then appears again disinhibit, disinhibited, uninhibited, and weird. Socially, ex nay, we've got to get you out of here. It's sad. Even if you were to try to get them calm and appeal to them, you, you can't. Their reasoning brain cells are damaged. They don't understand. They're not willfully choosing, and it usually is uh, unprovoked. It's really sad. It like major stinks, and I'm really sorry for you guys. Uh, no amount of loving, no amount of tender love, no amount of hard, tough love, interpersonally, will change any of it. And she's mentioned intervention, which we're going to talk about later, is what is intervention and how do you intervene when a person is young, because they're still in the traditional prime of their life where most people are still able to manage their life affairs, but these folks aren't in early dementias. Frontotemporal, so that's the behavioral variant. Um, let me tell you some other icky things about that. Hypersexuality, like when I said stripping your clothes off, it happens. Uh, a deacon in my church 
has, he's still living, frontotemporal dementia, hypersexuality, strips his clothes off, approaches women, has been picked up by the suburban police department multiple times, is in a um, residential community, climbs over the walls, walks around the shopping center, takes his clothes off and approaches women. He was my Sunday school teacher. He was a deacon in the church. His family is still in the church and very upright. And he was not a pervert before. And now, how do you deal with that? I mean, even I trained the suburban police department, and they knew who I was talking about when I just was using examples. I mean, that, it happens. And it's a disease process. The neurocognitive diseases, which are what dementia diseases are, are degenerative and terminal. Somebody said they didn't die of whatever, but I'm going to show you they, they did. But yours might not have, but I'm going to show you how it is terminal. So, spending money very, very recklessly. Uh, be, they are very vulnerable to elder abuse, to, to a victimization. Telephones, scams, victimization financially, um, uh, compulsive shopping literally is on the list, um, you know, just erratic behaviors and mainly unmanageable. That's frontotemporal behavior, BV, behavioral variant. There's frontotemporal aphasia. Aphasia means you can't talk, you can't get the words out, so you're not mute. It's that the word formation, it's not muscular. This is what's so fascinating about this. It stinks, but it's really fascinating. It is a disease process that affects the language component in the fronto part of the brain where we laid all that stuff down. We know it's in there, but the, the, the language expression component cells are damaged. So those people, they become basically mute and mumblers early, very early on. So how do you express what you need if you can't say words? Can't write them either. So everything about the language expression is damaged. What do you do with that? So there's nothing like really extreme. You know, they're not doing anything socially inappropriate. But they went from being somebody that you could be in relationship with to somebody that you can't be in relationship with or it's more difficult. Because even the facial expression component doesn't express the words. It's the language component. So if we're sad or mad, it, 
we could express that if we understood it. So you can't prompt them to communicate, you know, tap two times if you're mad. Mad uh, has no meaning. La the language component, the language expression is damaged and, and permanently. So it's, there's no speech therapy. And that's pretty much, there's not any other really extra peripheral behaviors with that person, but it's just, it's just really sad. So I have uh, a patient that I followed from the time her husband reached out when I was at the Alzheimer's Association, and she, she just died a couple of months ago at, at Baptist Hospice. 59 years old. When we met uh, five years ago, she was not speaking. So that was another five years she lived, and I didn't know her before. Uh, she and I really connected with our eyes at first, and then not anymore. I could tell she was a real sparkly kind of person. And her family said that my personality was similar to her. She was, you know, kind of always, you know, having fun, blah, 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 you know. And, um, and that they think that's why she connected with me. But I couldn't imagine ever what she would have ever been like because she, never, she could never express herself. And so when you can't express yourself, you get very introverted. Um, she had the behaviors of staying, of kind of paranoia you had mentioned, although she wasn't paranoid, but she stayed very close to her husband all the time because the safety factor is the minute you're away from somebody, you're going to be communicated with and you can't communicate, so then you become unsafe. He was able to leave, have her at home alone with dogs, for like two years, and, and I'm going, are you really sure that that's okay? But it was. Everybody, she, he knew everybody in the neighborhood. He alerted them. She walked the dog. She never left the house because she didn't want to. She never answered the phone. And then there came a time that there, there was other, we're going to talk about other ways, but she stayed at home the whole time until hospice. Actually, not that's not true. It was two months in a facility and then hospice. And I'll tell you how that journey went. So that's frontotemporal, and that's the aphasia. Aphasia happens in very late Alzheimer's. And I think we've kind of talked about that with some of you folks who have been through the end-end cycle with your loved ones with Alzheimer's. It's just mumbling and bump, no particular words. The prompting, they cannot receive the prompting because they don't understand the language component. Let's see, frontotemporal. Think about what's the third one? I can't remember. Where but there's the, another one. Where was the Louis body again? The Louis body, where was that in front or in the back? Where? Well, let's just segue to Louis body because I can't remember what the third frontotemporal was. But there's another one. So if I can remember it, I'll tell you. But that is a, I'm going to come to Louis body. Frontotemporal FTD 
is a disease process that does frequently occur in folks that are younger than 65. So you guys can write this down. There's an association of frontotemporal diseases, degeneration. It is AF, what is it? Anyway, look it up. A, also, uh, association of Frontotemporal, maybe AFTD.org. Very, very good website. Another disease process that occurs in folks younger than 65 is Lewy body dementia, LBD, or dementia of the Lewy body type, DLB. That is a, Lewy body is a cell. It is a, in science terms they call it mutated, but I hate that word because it sounds alien. But it's a cell that's sick. It's not, it's not a well cell. It's a sick cell. And it, it affects this some kind of component back in here. And again, it's, it is the same cell that is Parkinson's. But it expresses itself in behavior. This person, their memory stays intact for a very long time, which means they can remember when they have behavioral outbursts, and then sometimes they can't. Um, Louis Body's first expression usually are visual hallucinations of not necessarily uh, like uh, somebody in their life, like not really somebody real, like, oh, I see grandmother and we're having a chitty-chatty. That's kind of more along the hallucination of a, in the mental illness category. This would be more like um, it's, it's raining spiders or, it's, or, their butt, or there's a dog or there's something. And frequently that... Uh, that hallucination doesn't really like have conversation. It's just an observed something or other. And uh, according to the folks that we've met in the literature, because I've been curious about this, is they're not frightened. It's not scary. And that's how you can separate a hallucination, a visual, it's visual, it's what you see what they see. That's how you can separate it from a mental illness. In mental illness categories, that is not a degenerative disease process, there are hallucinations. There are visual hallucinations and lots of other kinds of hallucinations. And they frequently have fearful behaviors with them and these typically don't. So when we have somebody call us and they say, well, they're having visual hallucinations during the daytime. It's usually during the daytime. We're like, we're LBD. Bring them in. We want to meet them to figure out, is it Louis body dementia? Hallucinations occur in late Alzheimer's. How many of you with your loved ones had hallucinations and delusions in the later stages? Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. Um, a couple of weeks before my grandmother died, uh, 
one of my aunts, I think, wanted to kind of give her permission to let go. So she said, well, Mother, do you see any angels in the room? And she said, no, but there's some elephants here. And I said, so it's one of those where if she hadn't been asked about something unusual, like angels, she probably wouldn't have volunteered. Yeah. Well, that there were elephants there. So. Yeah. So in the latter stages of Alzheimer's, there becomes a damage with visual-spatial component of our functioning, and objects look like something else to them, and then sometimes it's, it's uh, role-playing the past, and, and frequently those are during the sleep cycle. And they usually disturb the sleep cycle. The person usually uh, is physical with it, which means that they're at fall risk. Uh, and sometimes it can be uh, a little bit dangerous, but it's mainly just making sure that they're safe. You can't necessarily talk them out of it because they're really in it. And this is different than their alter, real, alter reality that's, that's where they are because of their disease process. This is a fictitious, maybe parts of reality, maybe not, but it's a hallucinated state that they're in. And, you know, I, I mean, one time I thought, okay, I'm going to go into my dad's world, so I tried to role play into it, and he got mad he did not want me in there and I'm like in his hallucination I'm okay and I just kind of like well we're just going to let him calm down and try to get him back to sleep again Uh, so daytime hallucinations visual it's visual it's not what you hear the per- with Louis body, it's typically not verbal, auditory, it's visual. Additionally, with Louis body dementia, is disrupted sleep cycles. So it's not insomnia, it's during the REM part of sleep, and the person can become very physical. In, uh, they kind of call it flailing of their arms, this business. So if it's a spouse, guess who's getting hit? And if it's, if you got head to head, guess where they're getting hit? <laughs> it's like on their face and their neck and their upper chest, which is our most, most vulnerable part of our body. And here you are being woken up by this person doing this business um, and their legs. And so it can become dangerous for the spouse to remain sleeping all through the night in the same bed. And the person doesn't necessarily remember them or not, and they can't necessarily be controlled. So it's not like we turn the lights on, poof, all of a sudden they're fine. It has something to do with the brain connections when they're in that deep cycle affect the movement cells. And so Lewy body dementia is in the same place of the brain as Parkinson's, and Parkinson's is a movement disorder. So it may, so there's some kind of connection with that happening there. 
Let's see. What else with Lewy Body? Yes. I'm just need a few comments from the experience that I've had. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom started having dementia in her uh, 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, her primary care physician said he thought it was a vascular kind of dementia, which I assume was not enough blood flow to the, to the brain or something. We'll talk about that. And uh, one uh, healthcare worker said, uh, when I met my mom, uh, said she thought, uh, from what I told her, it was a Lewy Body dementia. That's the first time I, I heard that term. Mm -hmm. um, my mom's dementia started with, we lived in a house that was attached to another house, there was walls and cabinets, and a few times I heard some knocks from like next door, the neighbor was like letting their door slam, and my mom began to think it was being done purposely, and <clears throat> since I had heard some of these, I thought, well, maybe there's something going on here, but uh, then I'd be away at work and uh, come back, she had a list of times when she heard all of these, mm -hmm. I was really wondering what was going on, I, I assumed that she was just telling me what really did mm -hmm. happen. So that's like the first stage. We actually weren't worried of moving anyway. It prompted us to move. But then I found out some other things that were happening too. And she eventually did have kinds of um, hallucinations uh, at night. Uh, she thought she saw a cabinet being opened by remote control by the neighbor who was taking things out. Mm -hmm. So we have remote control. Mm -hmm. uh, she thought that she didn't recognize her own things and that she thought mm -hmm. the neighbor was taking her nice things and replacing them with their not-so-nice things mm -hmm. that this was going on. She had some hearing-type hallucinations, like thinking water was running outside during the night when it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I think there were some sounds during the day that she thought mm -hmm. things were happening, but they really weren't. Mm -hmm. So these were the kind of occurrences that mm -hmm. were, were happening. Yeah. And you were the one that mentioned paranoia. Yes, because uh, she thought so the neighbors were yeah. breaking in. So paranoia is a very big component with Lewy body dementia. Suspicion and paranoia uh, with anything, anybody, spouse, anybody. Very, very suspicious, very, very paranoid and uncontrollable. Oftentimes these folks, uh, it's more psychotic in nature and Oftentimes, police need to be called to kind of corral that person, and that's misinterpreted as having a uh, like a mental breakdown or a manic depressive episode. Uh, do you have another thing, Marilyn, to mention? It does affect mobility also. So there's a term that's called, um, and I can't remember, and um, somebody correct me if I need to. It's either, it's Parkinsonism or Parkinsonianism, Parkinsonism. It's the symptoms of Parkinson's, but it's not the disease. And so the typical, some of the symptoms are the tremor, but, but the difficulty with the, foot, with the feet movement and a lot of that is the brain doesn't tell the feet that they're, they're there. And so sometimes the legs are, are moving, but the feet don't come with it, and it causes uh, movement problems. So it's true with movement with that. All right, so that's the Lewy body. And that does typically occur early. Those symptoms of Parkinsonism occur late-er with Alzheimer's.
the paranoia occurs later with Alzheimer's. Anybody's loved one misplaced something, nobody can find it, and then they're agitated that someone came in and stole it. That's the, the paranoia and the kind of fictitious paranoia. Alrighty. So the and and so let's go back to Alzheimer's and talk about how it works itself out during the early as early Alzheimer's. There is age-related Alzheimer's and early onset Alzheimer's. What's common between the two is they have the disease progresses in stages. The Alzheimer's Association identifies seven stages. They're very detailed, and you can find them on the, their website, alz.org, like alz, alzheimers.org, alz.org, and just type in stages or seven stages. In communicating, it's easier to say three. Beginning, middle, end. And I add a fourth one that I'll take a minute. With early onset Alzheimer's, statistically, those folks go through the disease stages in about half the time as age-related. So age-related, from the time the symptoms are identifiable to death, is somewhere 20-ish years. 10, 15 to 20 years, something like that, from the early signs, the forgetfulness signs. If, when it's age-related, meaning over age 65, half of all of us that are up, heading all up in there, or maybe over age 65, are already forgetful. So it looks like it's hard to identify that that person's forgetful, that person's memory loss is actually forgetfulness until their symptoms have been exhibited for several years and the rest of their friends aren't getting any worse. And they're getting worse and everybody else is kind of slow progress age related and then it becomes more noticeable. And so oftentimes people will say, well, she only had it for about 10 years. Well, she had it for a lot longer than the 10 years, but you knew that she wasn't like you anymore, and then she lived for 10 more years. Age, uh, younger onset or early onset Alzheimer's, typically the early symptoms of memory loss are very recognizable because the person is so young. They're forgetting like an older person. They are, they know it. There's just something that they're more aware of, probably because it's socially appropriate to be forgetful when we're old. Don't we laugh about that all the time? Well, everybody, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just okay to be forgetful when you're old and not okay to be forgetful when you're young. So we, it, we're more socially uh, 
aware when a person is losing memory. It's not forgetfulness, remember? It's at work, and they can't remember the process that they have done over and over and over again. They didn't forget their keys. They don't remember there's a key to get into the cabinet. Many folks are working, still in the workforce or at home, still active with older family members or maybe taking care of a parent, and, and it looks like something's really wrong. There, and for some reason, there's no particular, there's no answer, and to me it doesn't make any sense that a younger person's disease process would occur in a shorter period of time. But statistically, it's about 10 years. This early forgetfulness is recognized sooner, but the person passes sooner. I think if your body's stronger, why would, you, why would it go faster? But there's, so, there's, I don't know. But the stages are recognizable and similar. What makes it so difficult are the things that your family's dealing with is this person is in the prime of their life. We see folks with early onset Alzheimer's because of their job performance. So their bosses have asked them to get a screening or they're going to be fired if they don't get a screening, or they've gone to their uh, employee health to say, I'm really worried about my performance. What can you help? What, what can I do? Oftentimes, those folks, will, when they're at their regular doctor, it's difficult to identify that it's a disease process but it can get recorded in the record and they, they don't get the help that they need, but they're still declining in performance. So the stages still occur. So let's talk about what the stages are and it, they just get reduced by years. So early stage is, uh, I call it uh, observatory is either the person themselves or the people in a person's life are observing things are not right. And things keep on being not right more of the time. And it's the loss of memory. It's the confusion. It's not just going into another room and you can't remember. It's going into a room and not knowing what the room is. It is disorientation. Now, I, I don't know about you all, when, but when you all go to like one of these big grocery stores, Kroger and Walmart or Target, Super Target, it's like every day they change what it looks like. So it's hard for us to find products all the time, right? So what's the first thing we do if we need to find our favorite product and they've moved it? What, what are some things we do? Ask for help. Who do you ask? The person with the shirt. So here we are, disoriented. Can't think about person with the shirt. And which means if you can't figure that out, then frequently you can't figure out how to get out of the store. 
So interesting, I would take my dad to the grocery store. That was one of our field trips because he could push the cart. Well, he would stash candy in his pockets. Learned not to go down that aisle. <laughs> they shoplift. They do. I mean, we call it shoplifting because it's against the law to take product without paying for it. But small items that they can get in their pocket or purse, they'll take. Inhibition, you know. And as he got worse, he got more and more frightened after we got in the door. And the last time, few times I took him with me, he would say, he was very hesitant to push the card. He'd say, how will we get out? How do we get out? You know, I mean, all he, this is just all stuff. The doors are here. How do I get out? And so I realized it wasn't safe emotionally for him anymore to be in such a confusing environment. So those are the early signs is watching someone lose memory, become disoriented, and become confused. The disorientation often uh, makes itself most evident in driving, getting to an area, not knowing where to go, and taking a very long time to get somewhere and not realizing that they were lost the whole time or not admitting it. Uh, and the confusion part, just getting people mixed up or things mixed up. The next the middle stage is um, a supervisory stage. That's just my word. It's the person just needs eyeballs on them just to make sure they're safe, uh, to, to steer them away from danger, to uh, super, just be there if the stove is left on to turn it off and to know eventually to unplug it, to uh, be aware that that person is getting lost driving and to go with them or have family member be with them until they're unsafe driver, but as long as they're safe. to watch their mental, their emotional state because it becomes impaired and make sure that they're in the kind of environment where they don't have a negative experience. So going out to the groceries, uh, to restaurants. In the middle stage, that person will have difficulty selecting off of a menu. So if you say, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. I mean, how many times are you going to say that and you're going to get the same answer? So you learn to say, I know you like hamburgers. Do you want a hamburger? Yes. What would you like on it? Everything. You know, you just order for them. Uh, they do inappropriate things at the table. You tell your waitress or your server. Uh, my dad's, you know, has dementia. Don't worry about him. Um, with the behavioral variant, over to the uh, behavioral variant folks, they'll be in the restaurant. They may burp, pass air, you know, stuff like that. Uh, look over at somebody and say, you know, uh, they're fat. Something really inappropriate where now you really cannot take them into that environment because they can't stay contained in just your little booth here. Uh, and you're going to watch their finances. Um, these are called... Um, Instrumental activities of daily living. So if you want to write these down, 
Uh, they're for short called IADLs. ADL is activity of daily living. It's the instrumental activities of daily living. Those are impaired, become impaired definitively in the middle stages. That's how you know the progress of the disease of Alzheimer's. And you, you'll look for it in all the diseases. But instrumental activities of daily living are the things that we do that are the business of doing life. So uh, driving, uh, finances, using the telephone, uh, creating a shopping list and being successful shopping, meal planning, eating, and not the, not the putting the fork, but having you know, meal preparation and successful nutritional intake. Those, those are most of them. I might have forgotten something in there, but that's most of the instrumental activities of daily living. Those become impaired and need supervision and then eventually intervention. Because at, and, and that's why if you look on the Alzheimer's Association site to see the seven stages, so out of seven, somewhere in there, three, four, and five, five stage five is a lot di different than stage three. Early middle stage is a lot different than late middle stage. Late middle stage is beginning late stage. So you've always got to know what's coming next. And late stage is what I call dependent. The person becomes either came into it partially but will be completely dependent on multiple individuals meeting all of their needs. During that time, in a younger onset individual, where you know, they may be in their mid-60s by then, or maybe barely 70, maybe, and the spouse or other family members are also still active in their lives, I mean active in their own life. So they may have a spouse that's in a career or family members or kids that are still in school that need money for, for college and activities and things. So it's very, very difficult with how, how to manage life with the rest of the family. But it is a multiple-person effort. I know all of you that are caregivers know that for sure, and you know it better now after you've lost someone than during it. There's no one person that is the, the best and only caregiver, even though those of us that think we're super caregivers wouldn't believe you during the time. If a, if a caregiver does not receive assistance with a team of care providers for all of the Instrumental activities of daily living, those need to be farmed out to some people in the community, family, whatever. As you get to the dependent stage, then their activities of daily living will become impaired. And that's bathing, toileting, putting the food in their mouth, the eating part. Uh, what else do we have? Bathing, eating, um, dressing, getting their clothes on. So it's the things that have to do with their actual person and their body. And that's why when someone hasn't been diagnosed or their family hasn't recognized that they've got a problem, 
up to this point, then they're really in a problematic state because they've been, uh, there hasn't been any intervention to help them with their life and they typically begin to act out negatively because they're crying for assistance and they're yelling for change this so that my life can work better. They become very narcissistic, which is it's not narcissism, but they become very only me focused because their brains can only focus on the only thing that they are able to do, which becomes more and more limited. And so the caregiver, a person at, with the mid-stage, entering into late-stage Alzheimer's or any of the diseases, is oftentimes able to be cared for at home with assistance, hired assistance, voluntary assistance, the family member being the caregiver coordinating care, and then as time progresses, this is a fact that most folks with any of the disease process must find appropriate residential living. It must be found for them. There are few folks that are able to keep their loved one at home until they die. And, and it does happen. I mean, it is possible, but it's not usual. And even, I didn't believe it. I'm like, I'm going to have my dad the whole time. But it becomes medical as their body declines. So I want to show you how it's terminal. All the diseases, no matter how the biological component is occurring in their brain, the neurons that take care of the involuntary functions of our body are affected. So if your muscles can't contract, then you can't swallow. And your urinary incontinence and bowel incontinence become guaranteed. So how many times are you going to, you know, you're going to use depends and depend disposable diapers, but how many times are you going to change the sheets? I gag at poop. Sorry. So, like, that was the defining factor with my dad. I, I couldn't handle bowel incontinence. Uh, eating. How many of you are equipped to Heimlich an impaired person when they're choking? When their muscles won't contract to get it out? Are you going to sit there and watch your loved one die in front of you because you don't have the medical care to do it? Medical skill to do it. Even if, you're, even if you are medically inclined, can you, can you really do that? Can you really do what's necessary for your loved one? So in the late middle stage and definitely in the end stage, the dependent stage, is where I want you to leave here knowing you need to plan for additional care. And the model for care is in a 24-hour period of time, it is a it is an acceptable model to have 
one person working only an eight-hour shift a day. Perhaps one person working a 12-hour shift for a couple of days or so. And that's all. Which means that if you are the primary caregiver and you think that you are going to take care of your loved one, you cannot do it because there's another two sets of eight hours. And if you fill that role, statistically, you will die before your loved one. So, if you work yourself into it and say, okay, we'll do two 12-hour, we'll do 12-hour days, then at least you're hiring one person for seven days or seven different people or whatever that model is. And then as the needs become more medical, it's going to have to be three shifts, three people, and it's reasonable to go three people five days, so that's 15 people. And then you've got the weekend, three and three, so that's six. So you're talking about 21. It's a team. So it is doable with fee-based care, uh, with supplementing with adult day services, which is a, a private pay, very well-structured and uh, atmosphere for the loved one to be in and very cost-effective. And then eventually the full-time residential care is much more cost-effective than you managing however many people, I said 15 or 20 people, 24 hours a day. It can be done. And you with the person who realizes they are managing the care and they stop being a direct care component. So, that's just according to my life. Yeah. Yeah, Susan, I think you're absolutely right. Particularly as it's getting toward the end, if people won't, there was a lady in our church and her husband was twice her size. He would get to where he would just sit. And you can't just sit. You know, eventually, if someone stays in the same position for too long, you're going to get bed sores and, and, you know, things like that. You need mm-hmm. somebody to get. So they had to be at least two people. It wasn't mm-hmm. enough to just have her alone to mm-hmm. get her at anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and so. At one point, just trying to be my exactly. mom. You yeah. can't do it safely. Yeah. And so it becomes medical because if you're not up ambulating every hour or so, uh, then think about the, um, and they're eating, think about their urination. They're going to be subject to urinary infections. Uh, they're going to be subject to bowel problems because they're not eliminating. They're going to be subject to muscle problems because they're movement. And they're going to be subject to sores. And not we haven't even gotten to their social interaction part. So you can't, it, it's just really unfeasible, infeasible, uh, not feasible, for one individual to do 24 hours. And so that's, it's just approaching that and uh, let's take care of our loved one and let's do it in an organized fashion. And it's really hard to do when a person is in their younger, is younger doing that. I want to cover one other disease process and then I want to kind of wrap up with where, how do we make this positive and then kind of close out with any questions. Vascular dementia is also considered vascular cognitive impairment. It can occur in any individual at any age. 
There's nothing particular about people having this in early stages or late stages. It's, uh, it's a cardiovascular event, so it's stroke, uh, TIAs, those, you know, we, we know that those happen in folks all the time. Uh, there's no way to anticipate what the damage is, but there's usually damage in the brain that is either uh, a direct hit damage or a lack of oxygen or brain bleeds. Whatever it is, uh, sometimes there can be some rehabilitation and whatever's left is permanent damage. And that person's body's statement of the vulnerability for that event is a precursor to that event occurring again and again and again. So health to us. Health is the best thing that we can do for all this, but especially for cardiovascular. If you have, if <clears throat> high cholesterol is is <clears throat> genetically, uh, if you're at risk for in your family, take care of it now and keep on taking care of it and don't pretend like you're wonderful and, and, and not at risk just because you eat organic foods. You have to take care of your body to keep care of the vas cardiovascular component. And, and those folks are also challenging to care for because their memory impairment is not linear, it's not predict predictable, but it is progressive. And it's not specifically terminal. The cardiovascular event may be the terminal component, but the, the disease, it's not a disease process occurring in the brain, it's a, it's a cardiovascular disease affecting the brain. The other diseases are biological cell components in the brain and they will in time affect the autonomous nervous system, heart, all of that, and it will bring the body to a close. I, in having the experience with my dad and reading, I prefer to call there's an end stage, a dying stage, and that's why I love this group here, the Coalition on Comfort Care and Bioethics, because this is what they deal with, is end-of-life comfort for these disease processes is different for every single individual and every single disease, and what's ethical. Are we, if a person's living will states do not resuscitate, and according to a disease process, there's no cardiovascular risk, and they have Alzheimer's, the last thing that will happen is their last breath. So what does do not resuscitate do for that person? If, in fact, they have been taking antibiotics for persistent UTIs or pneumonia and we keep treating them with antibiotics because that's what we do, we don't see, we, we might not see that that's a death intervention, but it's not on their living will. So 
that's an ethical issue that we have to think about and talk about and realize that when there is a neurodegenerative disease, that person's body will slowly die. And the end stage, the, de- the dying stage, for some folks can be short and it can be long for other folks. There's information on the table in the back about hospice, which is a beautiful service that's available to individuals at home or in the hospital or in a facility or in a building. So that's for another day. What I'd like to, to let you know is that knowing what type of dementia disease a person has is how you as the family know what treatment to, they need. And primary care physicians can help a lot with that. That's the initial physician that you go to to describe the symptoms. Sometimes the physician, the primary care physician needs to send to a specialist. The specialist is a neurologist. You can get to the neurologist if a primary care physician makes a referral. Statistically, folks see a doctor nine times before they get a diagnosis. The Memory Center was created by Baptists to shorten that length of time by providing free clinical memory screenings. We do not diagnose. We do not have a doctor on board. We provide the analysis to help the physician, that, that a physician can use to supplement the time that they see the patient, which is a very short period of time. This is just documentation of behavioral observations, uh, recognition of typical symptoms and how that patterns a disease process or not, medications that could be complicating memory, health conditions, cardiovascular conditions that could be causing problems, and provide a, uh, we, we do screening tools for the patient and the caregiver to show the person's current cognitive and memory condition. And then the physician, and then we always refer back to the physician if they don't have a diagnosis. If they do have a diagnosis, and if any of your loved ones that you're here worried about do have a diagnosis, then what we provide is we do the same service, but we do it from the perspective of you've got a diagnosis, you're going to see it in all the testing. And sometimes the diagnosis is dementia. So what's dementia? It's symptoms. It's not a specific disease. And that's how, frequently, that's how diagnoses are coded, which is not a bad thing. It's just not enough for family members. 
So when there's a diagnosis, then the families will come to us so that we can get clearer with them about what type of disease process they're looking at. Additionally, if we can't figure it out, which, which we can't some of the time, there are other specialists that we can refer to that can figure it out. And then as a person, family, depending on where they are in, the, in their care process, we're affiliated with all of the specialists, the dementia specialists, memory centers, memory specialists in the area that we can refer to for uh, driving evaluations or VA benefits or uh, public services or in-home care, residential care. And they've all, we've screened them to those that we know provide for folks with the diseases, not just say they do. So I'd like to wrap up and just uh, try to bring us to a place that's hopeful. And the hope is that the symptoms of the diseases are recognizable. As a matter of fact, you all can do your own diagnosing and get pretty close because of the symptoms. So you can document symptoms and even and take that to your physician. You've got to have the physician in your camp because there are medications available. And there's specialty websites, so the Association of Frontotemporal Diseases, Lewy Body, Lewy Body Disease Association, LBDA, the Alzheimer's Association, ALZ.org. Um, there's not one for vascular cognitive impairment, so that's the stroke, uh, the American Heart Association, and the uh, stroke component of that. Uh, there's the Parkinson's Association that can help. Uh, so um, I'm sure there's some more. But I'd like just to kind of wrap up and remind you all that you've got an evaluation form that, that if you could complete that before you leave. So I, I'm just going to say I'm finished at this point uh, sharing information with you. And so I'm happy to have some group conversation and then at four we'll definitely close out and if you want to come up and have conversation. And I'd like to introduce you to Joellen Reed at the back in the blue shirt. She is on staff at Baptist also and she has volunteered to be here to help. She was caregiver for her mother who passed away from Alzheimer's so she is aware of that disease process and being a caregiver so you're welcome to kind of turn around and ask her any questions that you'd like. And we're just so glad that you would take your time and uh, just, you know, have hope that you are the advocate for your loved one. You have selected to get more information. Just keep selecting that and keep learning. And you'll come out on top. Do you have any type of... Um support group for the caregivers that are trapped in this and like some of this is is a no win. It's eventually mm -hmm. gonna get worse. Mm -hmm. How do you help prepare them for mm -hmm. this stage if they're loved ones? So supporting there? family, yes. uh, the Alzheimer's Association on their website has a whole list of support groups. We have it printed also so we could email it to you. 
For the specialty diseases, there really aren't any local, so they tend to be on the web, on a, like web chats. Mm -hmm. okay. And wow. once we've seen a patient where we know really what their condition is, then we can do family consultations afterwards, which is typically what happens with the frontotemporal and Lewy body diseases because they just don't fit in very well to the system. What other questions do you have? Uh, when you said the primary care physician can sometimes refer you to a, a neurologist, I thought you were going to say psychiatrist. Is it often more appropriate then for a neurologist? Uh, some folks need support from a psychologist or psychiatrist, but it's not a mental illness. It's a disease process, and, and there must be a physician that understands a disease process to understand the psychological behavioral components. You guys, I hope you'll bring your mom over to see us. Thank you. We've got another call. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll be thinking about you. Um, so, uh, so the psychiatrist sometimes has already been engaged in the process if, there, if it's a behavioral variant uh, and, and the patient's still getting worse. Joellen. Yeah. questions do you have? Are you familiar with a book by uh, Ross Chass called Can We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Where she talks about uh, her parents aging and what to do about them and her experiences with them. Mm -hmm. She uh, draws cartoons for the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a graphic novel memoir type Ooh. thing that she put out. It came out about a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really an interesting book to look at. Uh, Ross Chass, C-H-A-S-T is her name. Ooh. Thank you for sharing did you have a question? Uh, Curly here. Oh, was that one of these? <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, I need some clarification. Your services are, did you say they're free or what value insurance companies are? 
No, they're free. We don't take insurance. So there is no billable code for talking to families and talking to patients. So we don't bill. Don't need a referral. Absolutely. There's no no hospital affiliation or insurance affiliation. Uh, any, it's wide open, and the per, the patient themselves can call. The caregiver can call. What we do ask and really work hard at is that the patient has a another person with them because we survey that person for validation of what the patient is saying, because as you know, oftentimes there's a diminished understanding of their capability, or sometimes the family members are in uber denial, and when they can see how impaired the person, their loved one is, it kind of brings them to some, like a you know, soft reality here, and so it's really important. Also, it cuts down on our cancellations because people forget to come to our appointments. <laughs> and see, we spend an hour and a half for each appointment, which means we only have morning appointments and only have afternoons. So if we have a canceled appointment, we're like not, you know, this is what we do. That means we don't have something to do at that time. And there are other people that want to be there. Any other questions? Okay, so I'm going to be here, and uh, Joelle will be here, and so if you want to wrap up your meeting, then. Susan, we thank you so much. This is amazing.